morning. I'd like to welcome you all to the Women in Public Policy Program. I'm Victoria Budson, the Executive Director here. It is my pleasure to be co-sponsoring today's seminar with the Project on Negotiation. We have a long-standing history of working together both in our seminar series but also in doing different seminars. And today we welcome back Muriel Niederla, who has been with us and really has been one of the critical thinkers looking at how gender and negotiation interrelate and expanding the field of what's known in this area. If you never have had the opportunity to read this volume of the negotiation journal that Iris and Hannah co-edited, it's all on gender. And some of Muriel's work is featured in it. I'm just going to pass that around so people um, can look and get a sense of some of the prior work and papers. So Muriel joins us from Stanford. She's a professor of economics there. Her talk today and much of her work focuses on gender and competitiveness and really understanding how the women may appear less competitive than men, but we also see as a really uh, significant effect, which we'll talk about today, that this comes out in mixed sex groups rather than single sex groups. So let me now turn it over to Muriel and let me share with you, you may ask questions during the talk. She's very comfortable with that style and we will be recording this for our podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the nice introduction. Uh, thank you for having me. And please, really feel free to, to ask questions. You know, in economics, we are used to a very aggressive seminar style. Feel <laughs> <laughs> free to ask non-aggressive questions as well. <laughs> I'm very happy to, to get questions on the talk. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to talk about a, a bunch of papers today. Uh, the beginning is going to be uh, some of my old work, and then we're going to move towards towards some newer work. And the introduction is uh, maybe I guess I can skip it, given the environment uh, that there are still large gender differences in representation of women in high-profile jobs, you know, CEOs, uh, as a uh, gender wage gap. And there's also large gender differences in education. Women are much less likely to be in STEM fields. And if you have opened the New York Times today, at least the online version, you know, <laughs> in another big article on why women may not be represented in STEM fields and how these differences can be very, very large. So we want to help understand why uh, we have these uh, gender differences in, in math and STEM, and you know, one question we ask is, okay, why, why do we care specifically about math and STEM? Why not say literature or English or German? Uh, and one reason is that consistently, math grades or proficiency in math has been linked with future earnings. So, as an economist, you know, we think of future earnings as uh, being very important. And this has not been true for grades in either literature or English uh, or other languages. And there seems to be, a, at least in the US, so there's some worry that we won't have enough STEM majors. And if you're missing a big part of the population, you know, maybe uh, that is one reason that we may not be able to close that, that gap. Okay, so the standard explanations, again, has have been featured in the New York Times today, uh, either discrimination or gender differences in abilities, and preferences, you know, maybe women want to stay at home, have children, uh, don't want to spend that much time in the lab. And our approach here is going to think about how about some of these other, uh, people call them non-cognitive skills of psychological attributes. Uh, are there cognitive skills, non-cognitive skills that are very large and robust and that may help account for some of these gender differences in labor markets or in educational choices? And the non-cognitive skill I'm focusing on is gender differences in competitiveness. Okay? So today I want to tell you about what gender differences in competitiveness are, how we can find them in the lab, 
and then I will tell you a little bit that this has been very, very robust. It was basically you know, the beginning of my career. And recently we have assessed the external relevance of this finding. Is it actually the case that these differences that we find in the lab, we sometimes find in the field, that these can help us account for some of these gender differences in labor market outcomes? Over here we're gonna focus on gender differences in education. Okay, so is that trait that we find so robustly, and I think the lab is, is one of the larger gender differences we can persistently find, is that trait really helping us understand what we initially care about, namely, <laughs> why women are missing incentives. So I'm gonna first, uh, because I think most of you have not seen that, uh, show you how we uh, came up with the existence of this uh, gender difference in competitiveness, at least in economics in the lab, and then uh, we're gonna move to this external relevance of that topic. Okay, so this is a, a paper joint, this is a Vesselund, uh, which appeared in 2007, and the title is, Do Women Shy Away from Competition? Do Men Compete Too Much? And in this paper, we wanna ask, are there gender differences in competition? So for that, we, we run an experiment. I guess I don't have to convince you of the advantages of experiments, but the, you know, <laughs> the main advantage is we can control for many things. Uh, we don't have to worry that gender differences in preferences for child rearing are gonna have an impact. You know, this is a one hour lab experiment. It's not gonna have an impact on their ability to raise children. We have 80 college students from the University of Pittsburgh and from CMU, people participating in groups of two men and two women. By the way, we never ever mention gender. Okay, they can see each other, there are always gonna be two men and two women, but we do not mention the word male, female, gender, and of this uh, They're gonna perform a real task. This is gonna be the task. They have to add up five two-digit numbers they do this for five minutes, okay? Now the question is how many of those they can do correct in five minutes? They're not gonna know the performance of other students ever until the very, very end, uh, and we never mention gender. We want to observe how much people select into competitive environments, okay? So do I prefer a non-competitive environment where my payment just depends on my own performance, or do I prefer a competitive environment where I have to outperform other people uh, in order to, to make some money? So in order to do that, we wanted a task where there's very little gender difference in performance. Okay? This turns out to be successful. So the benchmark treatments are, people come to the room, first they're gonna solve these questions under a piece rate scheme. Specifically, they have five minutes to answer those questions. If the first round, this task one, is chosen for payment, they're gonna get 50 cents for every correct answer. Once I've done this the first round, when I participate, I'm gonna to move to the second round. In the second round, I'm gonna to get to see, oh, I'm, I'm in this group of four people, they're sitting with me in the same row. There's gonna to be too many, two women. I can see that, but as an experiment, I never mentioned that. And if the second round is chosen for payment, then at the end of the five minutes, we're gonna check who has the highest performance. That person now is gonna get $2 for every correct problem, and everybody else is gonna get nothing. So you can see that here, my payment does not depend on the performance of other people in my group. And here, I have to be the highest performer in order to make something. After having done both the piece and the tournament, I do not know if I won the tournament. I don't even know how much other people did. 
I just know here I solved that many correctly, here I solved that many correctly. Turns out the performance of men and women is very, very similar in these two tasks. Okay. There's no gender difference in performance, neither in the piece rate nor in the tolerance. Okay. Men and women are basically equally good. Then we come to the really interesting treatment. Now the question is, what do I choose? Okay. I'm going to have to give a choice in my third task between the piece rate and the tolerance. And here is how we do this choice. See, if I choose piece rate for my third task, I'm going to get 50 cents per correct problem if the third task is chosen for payment. You know, one of them at the end is going to be chosen for payment. If I choose tournament, the way we're going to implement the tournament is if I choose tournament in round two, the question is who am I going to compete against? Okay, who am I going to have to outperform? What I'm going to have to outperform is what my group members did in this round. So my new performance is going to be compared to the old performance of my group members. The reason this is important is that I actually do not care what my other group members choose. Because their new performance has no impact on my payments. The only thing that matters is, can I beat what they did last time, where they were in the tournament? So I'm from Austria. We do a lot of downhill skiing. So if you have never seen a downhill skiing competition, which I guess is likely, uh, everybody skis down the hill separately. Okay, and you can think of that as, at the end, we're going to check who was the fastest, who solved the most problems. If I choose tournament here, it's as if you're going to say, my old time doesn't count. I'm going to get a new trial to run down the hill. And it's my new time that's going to count. But it's going to be against the old time of the other people. So the advantage is, this is an individual decision-making task. I do not, I literally don't care what other people choose. It is not going to affect my payments. I just have to decide, do I think I can beat the others or not? Okay. If task three is chosen for payment, if I chose piece rate, my payment is 50 cents for every correct problem I solve in task three. If I choose tournament, they're going to look at my new performance. They're going to look at the old performance of my other group members. If I am the highest, I get $2 per correct problem. If I'm the lowest, I get nothing. Right, I'm not the highest, I get nothing. I can be second, third, or fourth. So what do we find? Let's assume we take the performance in the second round as like a benchmark. This is how much I can do. Okay. If this is what they would do also in the third round, it may not have to be because sometimes you, you know, yeah, sometimes a little bit faster than other times. But if, if we think of people doing exactly the same thing again, if they choose tournament in round three, we would expect about a third of the men and a third of the women to enter the tournament. A third of people make more money from entering the tournament than from the piece rate. Okay? That means their chance of winning is above 25% because I get $2 compared to 50 cents per correct problem if I win. Okay? So if my chance of winning is higher than 25%, I'm going to make more money from the tournament. If we take the people who are different, whose chance of winning is exactly 25%, we would expect 40% of women to enter and 45% of men to enter. What do we find? 35% of women entering and 73%. <laughs> I told you this is a very big gender difference. You know, it is not, you do not need a big lens to find gender difference in competition in the lab. And I'm going to show you this has been very robust. So let me tell you a little bit who is entering and how else we could explain these differences. So here I'm going to show you 
as a function of the performance of participants, their likelihood of entering a tournament. These are the 25% best, best participants. These are 26 to 50% best participants. These are the worst participants. If I think just about maximizing my monetary income, those people should all enter. Those people, three and four, should not enter. In the second best category, because they are small groups, it may still make sense to enter. Not for everybody, but you know, for some. What we find is that consistently the men are entering more than the women. The worst group of men who have no chance of winning are entering with a higher probability than the best group of women. Very, very high chance of winning. The other thing to note is that um, the entry decision is pretty flat in performance for both men and women. A little bit more for women actually than for men. This is also something that is quite typical. People don't really potentially know how good they are. So when we run, so one reason this may be is because I actually don't know how good I am. I mean, this is as a function of how good they really were, but when I'm there in the lab and I have to decide should I enter or not, what matters is maybe not just my absolute performance, but how much I think how good I am compared to other people. So what may be different is gender difference in beliefs. Maybe all the women think, I'm not gonna win, then we shouldn't enter. And maybe all the men think, oh yeah, <laughs> the best person in the group, obviously I should enter. So the next thing we're gonna do is we're gonna check for the role of beliefs, right? This tournament decision is driven by relative performance. They only know the absolute performance. So there might be gender difference in beliefs that potentially could drive the gender gap in tournament entry. So how do we get at the participants' beliefs after they have made the decision, but before they get any feedback, so before they learn whether they won the tournament or not, we ask them, what do you think was your rank in the round two tournaments? When everybody had to do tournaments. You think you were first, second, third, or fourth. You're correct, you're gonna get a dollar, otherwise you get nothing. So I'm gonna show you first, are there gender differences in beliefs? And second, can they help us understand the gender gap in tournament entry? Here are the beliefs of men and women. Remember we have 40 <laughs> men and 40 women? 30 of the men think they're the best in the group. <laughs> uh, most of them are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not only the men that are overconfident, the women are also somewhat overconfident, right? So. 17 of our 40 women think they're the best in the group. So while both are somewhat overconfident, the men are vastly more overconfident than the women. But when you look back at the numbers, 75% of men think they're the best in the group, 40% of women think they're the best in the group. We had 35% of women entering and 73% of men entering. Maybe this is, maybe I just found the answer. Who is entering the tournament? Why we have this big gender gap in tournament entry? And because I have only 40 minutes, I actually killed a few slides, a lot of slides. <laughs> I'm just gonna show you the regression result that this is not the case, okay? So when we account, so this is a, a probate regression on tournament entry. These are marginal coefficients. So when we check what is the gender gap in tournament entry as a function of their performance in the tournament and their change in performance, we had about a 37, 38% gender difference in tournament entry, once we add beliefs, 
it drops to 28%. So it drops to about a third. But two thirds of the gap is still there. Okay? So beliefs are very, very important. But even when you look at the people who think they're the best, men are more likely to enter than women. Even when you look at the people who think they're second, men are more likely to enter than women. We don't have a lot of people who say they're third or fourth, so I'm going to show you those statistics. Okay? So beliefs are important, very important, but they only account for a third of the gender gap in cognitive testing. Okay? So we have some additional treatments, which in the interest of time I'm not going to show you, but the result is basically we get large gender differences in competitiveness. Some of it is driven by differences in beliefs. The other thing that you might wonder might have a big impact is gender difference in risk aversion, right? It's one of the other big uh, gender gaps you find. This turns out to only have a very small, ma very minor effect. Very nice for Lisa and me, and I guess probably one of the reasons I got tenure. This has been a very robust lab finding. Okay? There is a lot of replication. You know, this is one of the advantages psychology and economics is that these lab studies are really, really easy to replicate. Lots of people do this. They have additional treatments, right? but some of the original treatments are our treatments, and lots of replication, also in the field. Furthermore, when you look at uh, all of those papers, the impact of confidence has consistently found to be important. So beliefs matter, and consistently it has been the case that risk aversion is not that important. And I have another 20 minutes, is that correct? You have an hour. Oh, I have an hour, great. Any questions on what I have showed you so far? Because we're going to use this now to think about external relevance. Yes. Uh, yes, you talked a lot about sort of the average effects between men and women. Yeah. So I was wondering if you were looking at all, for example, like in the Well, that's clearly a distribution, right? So the, uh, unfortunately, the only figure I have left, I, I thought I had only 30, 40 minutes, so I, uh, is, is this one. Okay. So this is as a function of how good I really was. Now, it's an average, but at some point, you know, <laughs> we had 40 men, 50 women, so there was 10 men and 10 women here, so, you know, yeah. that's already yeah, disaggregated. Yeah, But the one thing I can tell you is that my performance, so this task is not a good task when you want to look at how the incentive scheme impacts my performance. Okay? It turns out adding up five two-digit numbers is so easy, they always basically do the same thing. It kind of doesn't matter how much you pay them, more or less. Okay? So after the choice, it is not the case that those that chose Pornament indeed become even better and the others become worse. We do not have a lot of characteristics and what is um, what is correlated with the gender difference in tournament entries. I think this is one thing where it would be nice to, to understand this a little bit better. So most studies have still been these very small samples, relatively speaking. There is one bigger study in the Netherlands where they, where they correlate some of the big five variables. Uh, I would imagine, you know, if you ask me, I think it's also ambition is another thing which I have no idea how to measure. I, I guess you have seen there's some psychology variables on this, but um, I think it's very correlated with competitiveness, and I have no <laughs> idea how to measure ambition or you know how to show that. 
great, you know, as an Arman became very famous, like <laughs> very recently uh, highly uh, recognized. I would not be shocked if that correlates a lot with gender differences in the population. So, so in terms of risk aversion, how do you measure that? So we have, I do not have this blank here. When, let me show you what we actually did, and then there are other, other ways people have done it. Instead of asking whether you want to first choose your incentive scheme and then compete, I could ask a different question. I could say, look back at this piece with it. It's already done. And it was a piece with pay, so you, you, you were not even competing at the time. I can ask you, how do you want to get paid for this one again? Either a piece rate, or we're going to submit what you did and compare it to what your other group members did. And if you're best, you're going to win money otherwise. So it's a lot like this choice, only here I make the choice and then I have to compete. Whereas before, well that's why we call it submit the piece rate, I submit something I have already done, I didn't even know I was competing, right? So maybe I feel, if I think it's about competitiveness, maybe I feel less worried that I didn't do that well here. Um, maybe because I think the guy didn't compete at the time. <laughs> but if it's about risk aversion, that is still equally driving factor. And it turns out, in this last treatment, we don't have big gender differences. And I can also use it as a control in my regression. And I think I have this slide here. Um, I actually, I, I killed that slide before. So I, it kills another small percentage, but not that much. And it, it's also another control for confidence. Okay, but that's other papers. So when I think about uh, some of these other controls people have done, is that they also have run risk aversion through lottery choices. Uh, in the next paper I'm gonna show you, we also ask them, are you somebody who takes a lot of risk? These kind of questions. Mm -hmm. They're all somewhat correlated, it takes away a little bit of the gender difference, but actually beliefs take away much, much more, and there's still a lot there. I know you haven't done research on it, but I was wondering maybe up until like middle school or high school that mm. there would be no mm -hmm. variation and that yeah. it's like beaten out of the women or similar yes. or society yeah. to you'll never get a date yeah. if you're yeah. so in that mm -hmm. kind of thing, unfortunately. We, yes, so we have here college students. Uh, so there are some studies, there are basically two studies that have looked at children over time and you can already find it at age three. Oh my goodness. I'm going to show you. Uh, I'm going to show you results where uh, students for the last uh, years of high school. So this guy is a middle school cool kid to a 14, and we find it there. So that's going to be in the next. Have you ever done any studies on women in their peak income earning years? If that tends to go away, like in the let's say 60s. People have looked at age also over the time. The one problem with age is that. Um, you get, so these are college students, it's also a selected sample of college students. But if you do it with age, the problem is, you know, they do it in shopping malls or something, so then it's even harder because the question is, who is gonna be in a shopping mall in the middle of the day? But what those studies find, well there are two studies, they don't find the same thing. Uh, one study found consistent gender differences and the competitiveness peaks, so people are the most competitive around age 40, but the gender gap is always the same. So it's kind of hump-shaped, but the gender gap is other studies found that all the women become more competitive, or actually some of them that say 
older men become less competitive, so who knows, you know, how <laughs> should increase it? And they say, well, it's because um, testosterone in men, you know, goes down with age. But I think, you know, there are two studies, they're very selected samples. I think we don't have a good idea what's really happening in age. Uh, I have, there is one study out of <laughs> many, many, many that didn't find it. Uh, but overall, it has been a, a very consistent result. So I have not seen uh, studies, even with professionals, who did not find it. So does the behavior of the men in this game work for them financially? Ah, that's a very good question. So who is losing money? Huh? Uh, it turns out, so you know, an economist, so I know that. <laughs> the people are going to lose the most money are going to be those winning. So remember, if you win a tournament, you get $2 per correct country. If you the piece way to get 50 cents. If I have a 75% chance of winning, I am losing a lot of money. This is also why risk aversion is not gonna explain it. Think about it. I have a 70% chance to get $2. It's a 70% chance of winning, I do about 17 problems. So I get two times 17 with 70% chance, or I get uh, you know, eight and a half dollars per show. You never see this kind of gender difference in risk aversion when you run them. But the men take this gamble and the women basically don't. So these women lose money. These men are going to lose money. They're not going to lose that much money because it's so bad. They don't make that much money. <laughs> but in terms of income distribution, it's interesting because the highest money makers are going to be the guys, and the lowest one are also going to be the men. I know we discussed um, that beliefs can have more of an So most studies find that women are less risk averse than men. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you need a big lens for that to be right. They're less more risk averse. Sorry, women are more risk averse. So uh, less likely to take risky gambles, sorry. <laughs> but sometimes you need a really big lens to find that result. And sometimes it is very big. Uh, but it just rarely has an impact on, or like large impact on tournament action. Yes? Okay, so let me, and then I'm gonna try to move forward. So they, I showed them who is in their group. I said, the group is basically your row. So we had like rows in the lab. And in every row, there were two men and two women sitting. And we said, these are your competitors. We do not mention about gender. We ran another study here in Harvard where we mentioned about gender because then we have an affirmative action treatment. And I didn't want to mention gender when I do affirmative action. So we mentioned it immediately. It actually turns out not to matter. You get the same result. But women are more happy to compete against women. So unless there's another pressing question, I'm gonna, because now it turns out to be also fine as it's so forth. So, okay. So we found all this robustness, you know, it's obviously really, really great, uh, uh, great for me as well. Uh, I mean, it's very sad, obviously, at some point. Um, so the question is, is it really important? Okay. Why should I tell my economics colleagues that gender difference in competition is something you should also care about? Okay. As opposed to people who are more interested in behavior and psychology and nutrition. Okay. So in economics, I think much more than in psychology, the way people think of this is this term relevance, but in economics this term has a little bit been hijacked. Okay. 
So often when economists talk about external relevance, they would say, if I find this with Austrian farmers, it's a real field experiment because that's what they do, they work in the field, um, <laughs> then I have shown external relevance. No, you haven't. You just found another group that works, sure. If I do it with Austrian students, I've also shown external relevance. The problem is you may not know anything about Austrian farmers. I think it's very likely. I definitely probably know more than you do. And uh, the question is, still, this is not going to help you understand whether this variable that is so consistently present in the lab can help me understand, for example, why women don't go to STEM fields, okay, or why women don't become teachers. So I'm going to focus on STEM fields because that's what I have data on. But this is what we mean, I think, when we talk about external validity. So maybe a better word for that is external relevance. You know, is that trait, is competitiveness, and we all talk about <laughs> more competitive or less competitive. You know, if you read the New York Times article today, they say, oh, you go to sciences and it's just so competitive. And the question is, is that trait gonna help me understand some of these questions that we cared about initially? And you did not care initially about Austrian farmers. So what we wanna do is we wanna correlate this lab measure with behavior outside of the lab and try to understand whether this lab measure can help me understand some of the behavior outside of the lab. Okay. So that's what we're gonna do next. This is a joint work with uh, Thomas Buzer and Hessel Osterbeck. It's actually now uh, forthcoming, well, subject to minor revisions in the QGE. And uh, we run this in the Netherlands and uh, in the Dutch school system, they have some very early tracking. So about 20% of kids go to what is called a pre-university track. Uh, so where they uh, get a diploma at the end of uh, school where they can actually go to university. And after three years in this pre-university track, so these are the, the last six years of, of school, uh, of, of children's careers in school, so in ninth grade, these children have to make one choice about what classes to take for the last three years of high school. Okay? This is not like the US, where you take whatever classes you want. This is much more common in Europe where also when you go to study university, you go study math or you go study economics and you don't take all kinds of classes when you are uh, in college. It is also the case that in some school <coughs> systems, but the Netherlands is one of them, uh, you have already to make some of these choices for the last years of high school. Okay. There are four profiles these students can take. One is called nature and technology. Think of that as a math profile. Nature and health is more like a biology profile, an economics profile, and a literature language profile. These are the four profiles children can take. This is also the order of prestigiousness. So the more math there is, the more prestigious it is. Turns out girls are less likely to take the math track, and boys are more, and more likely to, in turn, take the literature track. So I want to understand whether competitiveness can help me understand some of these choices. So controlling for academic performance is competitiveness correlating with study profile. Is that an important trait in and of itself? And second, can that trait help me understand gender differences in choices? So we have four schools in and around Amsterdam where we get every single ninth grader. They're going to participate in the experiment so this is going to be a few months before they have to make that choice. We have about 400 students in total. For almost all of those students, we get not only the experimental data, but also the grade 
and the choices they actually make a few months later about what to do for the last three years of high school. So the experiments were run in March, April, and May, and the profile choice happens to be at the end of June, okay, but which is the last day of June. So the experiment they're gonna use is basically adapted from what I've just shown you. It's made a little bit simpler because it's a ninth graders, and it's a little bit simpler because we have just one class hour with those kids. And they don't have all computers, so we have to do it with paper and pencil, and we have to make it a bit shorter. So uh, the big innovation is they have to now add only four two-digit numbers, and they do it only for three minutes as opposed to five. Uh, they're gonna have three rounds of doing this task, but they get no feedback but that's because we collect the sheets and then we have to go home and check if the answers are correct. Uh, one week later, we're gonna come back, we're gonna pick one of the rounds, and that's what we're gonna pay them for. It's only then that they're gonna learn what they, what they do. Maria, I'm sorry, Camelot, maybe that we had already discussed this previously, um, but why would, you, why would you use the math mm -hmm. task again? Yes, one reason is, maybe we did initially in the US, we didn't want to take anything that's English because there are lots of foreigners. And once you have foreigners and you do something with language, just you know, just huge variation between them. When we, when we thought about adding up numbers, I actually didn't even think about it being math. But then it is true, I got this question a lot, so uh, it is math. So I, I started math uh, in college. For me, this is not math. <laughs> First, it is something that you can do a lot in a short amount of time. So I'm gonna have some variance in performance, but not that much, but you know, so I don't have to worry that um, everybody's gonna do four. It's something everybody can do, so even if you don't speak English, it's very transportable. It turns out when you look at the psychology literature, the gender difference in math appear much later in the math curriculum. It comes when it's, when it's about hard math questions. Now, on the other hand, you might still say, well, I know that, but maybe <laughs> you as a participant don't know that. And to some extent, you know, we do worry about STEM fields and maybe it is viewed as something that is a little bit male. So I am not per se too concerned about using a male task. Now, people have done this also with female tasks. Sometimes the results are disappear once you control for beliefs and often they don't, and I don't think we have a good idea why. So I think it is something that is still left to explain or to understand. Uh, it is interesting that almost all over the world, I mean this has been, I guess because we did the math task, everybody who does math uses our task. And then people who do word tasks use all kinds of different word things. Um, so some scramble the letters and they have to find other words. Some say, you know, here are five, words, put them in the right sentence, so there are all kinds of other tasks, there hasn't been a consensus, and I don't think um, it's not clear which one is gonna show you something, which one is not. There are lots of things, by the way, we don't understand. The other one is, how robust is this trait? You know, if I measure it for you in one task and in another task, am I gonna finally be some correlation if I come back two years from now? You know, so I think there's a lot of things we still don't know. So even though there's, I mean, you know, to this, six years ago, so you know, <laughs> that's reason why there's still a lot of open questions, but this yeah. is one of them. I mean, there's also something to be said um, for just 
using the same parts, even if it's somewhat gendered. But you want to build on your earlier work, right? So otherwise, you. I think it's, it's going to work in that sense. I, so I get that. But you used mazes before, so you. Ah, so the like mazes, mazes was different. Anymore? So the, okay. This paper is about the extensive margin. Do I enter the tournament or not? My very first paper, which was my drama paper, looked at the intensive margin. Am I gonna work harder when I'm in a competition compared to in a piece room? I told you for adding up numbers, the performance is not varying a lot with incentive scheme. It basically always worked hard. Suppose I ask you to run you know, from here to the wall and I give you some small incentive, so you're probably gonna run fast. And now if I say I'm gonna quadruple the incentive, you're not gonna be that much faster. <laughs> I think. The same thing happens with this one. With the mazes, when I went from P-Suite to tournament, which was a different group of people, the performance increased by 50%. So this is a task where I get a huge intensive margin. I just work harder. Now the problem is it took 20 minutes, so I cannot do three times 20 minutes performance. And in a sense, having this difference in intensive margin is not what I want when I want to study the extensive margin. come back to them at the very end, uh, a week later, at which time they know how much they sold, and we said, look, we're gonna pay around whatever, one, two, or three, and then this is how much money they make. And you used to have groups of four? So we're gonna have, again, groups of four, but they're not gonna know who the other three competitors are. They know they're gonna be from their class, but they're not gonna know their gender. They don't have to know. So they're wrong. So the other thing which is different, so because I guess I grew up in the European school system, not only can you choose whatever classes you want to take when you're in school, but when you're in a class, you want to stay with that class for your whole school year. But what this means is, this is different from what we've done with the undergraduates in the US and also in other countries, because even though I don't know exactly who my competitors are, I know my classmates very well. I just spent three years with them. Uh, I know how good they are, how good I am. So you might worry that we may not find much because we kind of almost bias it a little bit against us. Okay? Because I may have a very good idea how good I am compared to my classmates. The reason we didn't do two boys, two girls is that some classes had a bit more boys or a bit more girls, which has added additional, you know, and we have to explain, you know, if it, it's not exactly the same, how do we deal with <laughs> classes that are not multiples of four in the number of students? So we just said, look, we're gonna pick three others randomly. So the round one was the piece rate. They're ninth graders, we don't have to pay that much, we don't have to come to the lab. So they get a quarter of a euro, which is a bit more than a quarter of a dollar per correct problem. In the round two tournament, the winner's gonna get one euro, again, four times as much uh, per correct problem. Remember, again, they get no feedback, we hand out the sheets, we collect it. Uh, you're from the Netherlands, so um, we actually have three versions of the test so that uh, they don't cheat that much, so 
you have a test and it's going to burn A, B, C and you're next to A again. So it's going to be hard to copy the answers. It doesn't mean you have to burn me a bit more in Europe than in the US. Um, you also have them stand up and the time is over, so you can keep writing. Uh, and then we do the round three choice, which is basically like we had it before. They can either choose P straight or they can choose tournament. If they choose tournament, once more we're going to compare their new performance to what uh, their group members did in the, in the old, old test. Then we're going to assess confidence. We're going to ask them in the round two tournament, how good do you think you were? Uh, and again, we're going we're gonna to get a euro if you're correct, so either first, second, third, or fourth. Then for the risk assessment, we have two ways of doing it. Uh, we, had to, we had to do something simple, so we went for uh, this, uh, uh, Captain Eckler has chosen this one. Uh, you can either get two euros for sure, or you can pick one of those 50-50 gamblers, you know, either so two euros for sure, or three euros, or a year and a half is 50% chance, or four euros, or one euro each is 50% chance, um, five and uh, half a euro, or six and nothing. So, uh, the more risky, so as I move up here, it becomes, the mean increases, but it also becomes more risky, okay? And we end up with less in the normal. We also ask, uh, following, uh, 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 I don't know his name, but he's actually visiting Harvard right now, uh, we ask this uh, non-incentivized question, how do you see yourself? Are you genuinely a person who is fully prepared to take risks? And the answer is from zero, I, I'm willing to take risks to 10, I'm fully prepared to take risks. I'm in front. I'm in front. So he has, shown, he has shown this to be more correlated, some of these uh, questions on, on gamblers, with say what kind of jobs people have, if they have, if they take uh, jobs that are more or less risky. So less risky jobs would be government jobs. Uh, so we, we thought we would ask a lot of them. Well, in Europe, right here, in Germany. <laughs> this is, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, you look at this from outside. <laughs> Moving on. This thing works, right? So we, we did both of them. Then, so we're gonna get the grades from the school. Okay, so we were a little bit worried because a lot of it is, the reason we pick on math here, it, and I guess maybe that's also another reason why we have this math class, is that the only uh, topic you have in all four of those uh, tracks or profiles is math. Okay, and you have it in varying degrees of difficulty. Okay, but it is the only one that physically cannot escape from. Uh, with that, all of them have to take Dutch. So there are some topics that are all the same in all of the tracks, and then you have additional topics, and the one that happens to be in each one of them at varying degrees is math. So it seems that how good they are in math is a big driver of what choice I'm gonna make. So we were worried that the math grade in itself may not be the best indicator of how good I am in math. Because maybe I'm very good at solving complicated problems, but whenever it goes to adding up numbers, you know, I just make mistakes. And say my twin brother is the opposite. You know, he's very careful. He never makes a mistake, but you know, maybe he's not that good in math up here. So the grades, you know, our grades may be the same because we get points in different questions, but clearly, say I'm better than my twin brother. So we ask this mathematical prowess question. We ask, 
how do you rate yourself in math in your year? Do you think you're among the top 25%, second 25%, first 25%? And how difficult is it for you to pass the math class from very easy to very hard? So these are non-incentivized questions. One worry is that that may already take away everything that we want to measure. Okay, so it could be that all of those trades uh, that I'm going to look at are already embedded in these questions. So if anything, they're going to make my life harder to find that competitiveness is important. That's fine. Once you make life harder for me and I still find something, I'm done. And then we also ask the students, what profile do you think you're going to pick in June? We ask them, what profile do the best students select? Remember, I told you that the general procedures is, you know, math, biology, economics, literature, but we wanted to make sure that the students agree with that. And then from the schools we get, you know, in the summer, once school is over, the grades of the students and the profiles they actually select. First, I want to convince you uh, a little bit why this is a good environment uh, and, and how that works. So I think the reason it's a really for us, the ideal environment is that I can measure the trade of competitiveness of children before they have had different experiences. In grade nine, they all have been still sitting together. They had the same teachers, the same curriculum. And it's only a few months later that they're gonna go off and do different things. So there are some papers trying to link uh, measures of trades with performances or outside of the lab measures, most of them do not have this feature that I can first measure the trade and then check at the trade. And as I told you already, uh, these are the tracks they can choose. Um, here are the, the different uh, hours they can take when they take these tracks. So this is the math track, this is the biology track, this is the economics and society track, and this is the literature track. And you can see that math happens at different uh, hours, also different difficulty levels. It turns out B is the hardest, and then A and then C, um, for whatever uh, unknown reason. Um, there are some additional hours they have to take no matter what, like a foreign language, a second foreign language, uh, Dutch, general natural sciences, cultural sports. <coughs> what profile I choose? turns out not to be important just for my high school career, but also for what I'm going to do afterwards. That's because when I want to go study, I have to apply for a university and a topic of study. And I have to have had uh, sufficient math to be even be allowed to do science and engineering or medicine. The people who take the math track, you know, most of them end up being in science and engineering, and the people who go to the culture and society tracks and the literature track, you know, are much more likely to end up in social sciences or humanities. One other way you can see that this is very correlated with prestigiousness, how much math you take, is that the chance of even making it to university is highest for the children from the math track, you know, than biology, than economics and literature. So these are just data from the statistics method. Just another argument why this is an ideal environment and that you might want to advance, particularly in a non-European context. Mm -hmm. I presume most schools in the Netherlands are public. All of them. Right. And so the there's much less, I'm just sharing that with our, with our colleagues, there's basically no selection in this field. 
Yeah. You select into tracks, mm -hmm. but you don't select into schools. So that's why I think it's a very nice experiment from that, that point as well. In a, there's, a, there's no way for you to, um, there are a few private schools, not many, but there's, there's no way for you to avoid uh, this division. I'm, I myself went to a French school that has this, the French school that has the same system. Okay. Uh, even though I went to the French school in Austria, in Austria it really doesn't matter because when you, when you want to study in university in a topic, there's no, there was no selection at the time, you just pay 50 bucks, you study. So it's a little bit different from what I guess what you guys are accustomed to. Uh, still, you know, there was this, even though nobody cared about, you know, there was this huge ordering, every one of my classmates knew it, even though most of us were Austrian, you know, for most of us it was completely irrelevant. Um, it is a very powerful, you know, it's, it's not something that you have to worry that they actually are aware of. So, I'm going to try to convince you that this procedures and profiles is indeed very much known among the students. I'm going to show you two things. First, I'm going to show you the average academic performance of the students as a function of their track. And then I'm going to show you the answer of we ask the students, what do you think are the best students taking? So when you look at the GPA, the GPA is highest for the people who choose the math track and is lowest for the people who choose the literature track. Uh, you get the same ordering basically for how, what their grade is in math. Uh, so grades are from one to 10, 10 is the highest, there's no zero. Um, when you look at the relative grade in a class, because there could be you know, cross-class variants, you get the same, uh, same ordering. Uh, we asked students, remember, how difficult is it for you to pass the math class, but, but 10 was very difficult and, and zero was easy. And we find the same ordering, the people who find math difficult go to the literature track more than the science track, and the same is how good I think I am compared to my classmates. 71% think that the math track is the most prestigious one, 60% think it's like, uh, the, the second most prestigious one is biology, 60% think the third most prestigious one is economics, and 80% agree that literature track is, is the bottom, uh, and boys and girls more or less agree with that. Everything I'm gonna show you is gonna take this ordering as given. We have from every student their individual ordering. So in the paper, in the appendix, I can show you the results are very robust even if I ask, given my order of prestigiousness, what classes am I taking? But for what I'm gonna show you today, I'm gonna take that order. This is the best, <laughs> the second best, the third best, and the fourth best in terms of prestigiousness. But we can do it for the individual record, and it's not gonna change. Note here, I actually cannot disentangle prestigiousness from math, because it's a perfectly correlated. I do not know whether my results are driven by math, or this is the most prestigious, you know, the hardest one. I have no idea. In the Netherlands, uh, this is a distribution of the Netherlands, boys are more likely, so 43% of boys take the math track compared to 23% of girls, and girls are very likely to go to the literature track. This is actually such an issue that in the Netherlands is somewhat of a new thing, these tracks. Uh, they were worried about this because it's, it's almost like a trap for the girls. Mm -hmm. right? Once they're in this literature track, there's not a lot you can do. Uh, they actually thought there was some debate of thinking of abolishing that. And then they decided not to because they see very new. Okay, so they're, they, they said they're going to 
going to keep going. Okay? Uh, but this is something people are worried about. So what are our children uh, doing and how do they look like? First, boys and girls, their GPA is basically the same. If anything, girls are a little bit better than boys. Actually, they're significantly better than boys, but not you know, much so. Uh, boys have slightly higher math grades than girls, but this difference is you know, far from significant. Uh, that is also true when you look at the relative math grades. You don't have to worry that there's a, a, a loser class where, where the girls get all the high grades. Uh, however, girls think that math is harder for them, and they also rank themselves as being less good. So, personally, I think a lot of that is already confidence. However, it could be indeed that they have superior knowledge in how they get their grade. Is it because they are good in the hard questions? Or is it because they are just not making mistakes in the easy questions? I don't know the answer to that. So we are going to treat all of that as variables that are given. Again, we want to control for that and then add on to this. You said they rate themselves as less good. Do you have a slide that shows that? This, is, this is how you rank yourself. How you rank yourself. Yeah. This is how hard you think it is for yourself. So this could just be, I have a different mm -hmm. view of what hard is. But you know, you <laughs> these two are very much going together. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it probably measures against now, it could also be true. I, you know, grades may not be a perfect predictor of how good you are in math. So, do you know how the boys rated themselves in the other categories? No, we just asked for math, mostly because it's the only thing that happens really everywhere. Mm -hmm. So none of the other classes, either you don't have a choice because you have to take it like English or Dutch or another foreign language, or they don't appear in all the, all the classes. So math is the only one that is everywhere but a different in our among our almost 400 kids 40 percent of the boys chose the nature and technology track eight percent chose the literature track and for the girls you know 15 percent chose the literature track and 17 percent chose the, the math track. um do the kids know where they rank in terms of performance within their class is there public information like like public, public, and there's nobody that's going to post this up. But remember, you have spent three years of your life with these 20 plus kids. Uh, I knew, I mean, I don't know. But how's that? Netherlands <laughs> okay. expert. So, I mean. my experience in Netherlands is very So I may, I, may, I may jump around because I, 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 I wasn't, but I, mean I can show you some of the numbers. Um, so academically, boys and girls are very similar, apart from this belief thing, okay? but they make very different choices. So I just want to show you, I want to get you a little bit familiar with the type of regressions we're going to run. So we're going to run ordered COVID regressions. So this is the likelihood of entering each of these tracks. But we order them with you know, math, biology, economics, literature. And the drawback is these numbers are uninterpretable. <laughs> However, the way you can interpret these numbers is you need to know these cuts. And I'm going to
the space on the detail. But this number here tells you what is, you know, if, if I go from the most prestigious to the least prestigious track, there is a, a gap that I'm going to have to jump over. Okay? And how much of that gap is, how much of that gap do I already make just because I'm female? This is what that number tells you. So think of that as just being female bridges about 20% of the gap between choosing the most prestigious and the least prestigious program. So if you're familiar with OLS regressions, in OLS regressions, each of the differences are one between each of those. Here we don't force it to be one. Okay, so we allow the data to tell us. Which, however, makes, unfortunately, this number unequivocal. Okay, and I have to notice that. So, if we just control for female, being female bridges about 19% of the gap between choosing the most prestigious and the least prestigious cohort. Okay? So think of the gap as one, 20% is taken by just being female. When I control for grades, the impact of gender increases. That's because girls are as good as boys in their grades. Okay? So being female becomes an even more important trait. When I control in addition for these feelings on math, which might be another variable for how good I really am in math. I do not know. It, it shrinks again, uh, and it's still 15%. Yeah? Can there be some external factors to show, like uh, how their, their mothers feel about math? Yeah. Or, uh, you know, I don't get the impression that the boys ridicule the girls for being good in math. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, where, where does it come from? It doesn't sound like it's yeah. coming from the school environment. So it's, it's hard. Or, or, or a lack of role models by that age. There are not a whole lot of female mathematicians running the streets. So <laughs> I think, so, right, some of this we have, you know, was discussed in New York Times last year. I have to admit, I do not know where it comes from. I guess I'm going to try to show that this gender different competitiveness is going to help me understand some of that. Mm -hmm. But even that, to some extent, I don't know where it comes from either. Uh, we do have. So, so something you might worry about is socioeconomic variables. Okay. So we have the names of the children, so we do some of that. It turns out, I mean, sure, it can explain a little bit, but the basic results still hold true. Okay. We don't have anything on the, we, 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 didn't, we, didn't, we, we were not able to survey the parents or anything like that. Mm -hmm. okay. To some extent, you know, I thought some of this may already be picked up here, right? so that I think you know, if my mother thinks, oh, math is hard for girls, I may think math is hard for me. Uh, but that's really the best I could do. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm not, personally, I'm not shocked that this women, even though they're at the same grades, find this more difficult. I personally don't think that all of this is deeper insight into how good I really am in math. I think some of this other stuff is definitely more stingy to that. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going I'm to take the most conservative stance. I'm going to say fine. Let's take this as given, you know? Let's see that we can do more than that. Well, have you ever considered, and I don't know, you would find more, um, but a question around how enjoyable is math? How, how did you like, do you love yeah. the subject? So I might find it so difficult, yes. but I might actually enjoy yes. it. Yeah. So, if you, might, you might think that, so, so um, let, let me talk later about the interpretation. So some of this is uh, how much I like this stuff. Um, it, it would be hard to, to take some of that with the competitiveness away, but 
the residual, a lot of that might be aggregate. Okay, but, but let's because then uh, it's, I don't think it's going to eat into my, in what I'm going to show you, what I want to commit to, but I bet that some of the residual is really bad. And it's because you may or may not enjoy, you know, something that's hard for you or, you know, being with other boys in the class. I mean, so there's a lot of things that we hopefully can do about boys in class. Now I want to show you that the boys and girls in my sample are a lot like undergraduate students, okay? So, uh, when we just think about who is entering the tournament, half the boys are and 23% of the girls. Okay. So overall, they enter less than our undergraduate students, but the gap and everything else is still going to follow the same pattern. Another thing to note, at some point I'm going to show you how important that zero one variable is, is I enter the tournament or not, compared to how important it is to be male or female. But male or female is a 50-50 variable. I mean, half them are boys and half them are girls, basically. Whereas <coughs> My competitiveness variable, I'm almost kind of gearing myself up for failure here because most people don't enter the tournament. It's not a nice 50-50 variable, so it should be less powerful, right? Because most of them don't enter. Half the boys too, but only a quarter of the girls do. But we find a standard pattern. Uh, the performance of the boys, at least in the tournament, is a bit higher, but not that much. That's why we always control for your chance of winning. Uh, boys enter more. Uh, they think they are better. Remember, one is best, second, third, and so on. Uh, and they are happy to take on more risk. Okay? So, very standard result. When we run our marginal regressions, our probability regressions, we find that girls are 26% less likely to enter the tournament compared to boys. When we control for the actual performance, uh, the change in performance from the piece of the tournament, the chance of winning the tournament. And when we add on uh, beliefs, or these two lottery questions. Uh, so when we add on just beliefs, you know, this drops again by about a third. So this is somehow very robustly third. Uh, and then as we add on some of these risk questions, it still decreases a little bit. If we add on this math grades or GPA or these feelings on math, again, it decreases a bit, but, but we still have about half of what we had initially, a bit more than that actually, here's my almost 60% uh, is still less. Just like with the American undergraduates or many replications, we find among our ninth graders, even they know each other very well, uh, that girls are less likely to enter the tournament. And now I can even control for the math grades. Right? So if you're worried that it's all driven by, so that does not seem to be the case. Okay, so boys are more likely to enter the competitions. A third is driven by genetic difference in beliefs. Another like 10 percentage point. 10% is driven by gender difference in risk attitudes, and so they matter a little bit here, less than beliefs, but a little bit, uh, and they still have some uh, leftover gender difference in competitiveness. We do observe gender differences both in confidence and in risk attitudes. So now comes the main question. Controlling for academic performance, first of all, is this competitiveness variable gonna be having any impact. Remember, this is something they do, it's a one hour class experiment. It is a super noisy variable. Right? It's a zero one variable with a lot of zeros. Is that gonna help me understand the choices? And second, is it gonna help me understand the gender gap in choices? So remember, this is what I have shown you before. This is an order probability regression of what track I choose. And I told you this number is hard to interpret. It's a zero-one variable, like, you know, 
and the, 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 ver the, the number that you can interpret is one set control for this cut, and we found that grammar being female bridges about 19.5% you know, of the gap between choosing the most to the least prestigious cut. So now I'm gonna add whether they enter the tournament or not. I'm gonna control for uh, the round one performance, round two performance. I add this variable, two things. First, even though you cannot interpret what this variable means, is that this number, it's a zero one number, this number is about as high as this one. So what that means is that this competitiveness variable explains as much as the gender variable does. Second, once you add this competitive variable in there, whether you enter the tournament or not, the gender gap shrinks by 23%. And it shrinks significantly. So 23% of the gender gap in choices is explained by my kind of crummy, you know, zero one tournament entry. Entering the tournament variable turns out to be as predictive of choices, actually slightly more, but you know, basically as predictive of choices as the gender. So if I don't know anything about these kids, and you ask me, do you want to know their gender or whether they enter the tournament? You say, well, either one of them is good enough. <laughs> Each of them is equally informative. And second, adding this variable reduces the gender gap in choices by 20%. Excellent question. Uh, next slide. So now let's add some of these control variables. Okay. So we can add the uh, grades and also this roughly how do I feel about math things. Okay. Uh, Sting. Uh, the number on the coefficient on whether I enter or not the tournament is about as high, it should be higher than whether I am male or female. And second, uh, it is highly significant. And second, while with all these controls, the gap was only 16%. When I add this tournament entry variable, I still shrink the gap by about 18%. So even when I have all these controls, while the overall gap is a little bit smaller, what tournament entry can explain is still, you know, roughly now it's 18% of the gender gap in choices. And again, it is about as important as knowing your gender is whether you have this zero one variable of entering the tournament. So this non-competitive, this non-cognitive skill of competitiveness significantly correlates with study profile choice. After controlling for grades and feelings of math and prowess, the coefficient is you know from 75 to 130 percent depending on. So I just showed you two regressions. You know we write lots of them. So this is over all of them of the size of the coefficient on gender. Even though, remember, our zero one variable of entering the tournament is almost a little bit biased against us because most of those are zeros. So having a variable that has a majority of zeros compared to one is not gonna be very good at being a good predictor. Right? If it's all zeros, it would be always gonna offer predictors. Controlling for competitiveness reduces the gender gap in profile choices by 18% when we account for everything we have known. So I'm gonna use the last minutes to show you that you know, it could still be that the reason tournament entry is so important here is that even though beliefs account for only a third of the gender gap in tournament choices, 
maybe believes are accounting for all of the impact in here. Okay? Likewise with this conversion. So I have two variables that I know are correlated with tournament entry. They don't explain a lot of the tournament entry, but maybe the part that they explain is the part that is driving this result. Okay, so I'm gonna add those in as well. Before I do that, I can however show you, just this is already gonna give you the answer and then we're gonna have some numbers and regression. What I'm gonna show you here is for each of the tracks, math, biology, economics, and literature, how, how competitive am I? Then we're gonna net out not only the performance, but also beliefs and risk aversion. Okay? So this is, think of that as a residual <coughs> of a linear regression of tournament entry on all these control variables, including beliefs and risk aversion. And what you find is, especially for the boys, the ones that enter the math track, they are just hyper-competitive. Okay? The boys that enter the literature track actually look like girls who enter the literature track. And this competitiveness variable seems to be somewhat more important for boys than for girls. But for both of them, you get this nice ordering. The more I go away from math, of the lower I go in terms of prestigiousness, the less competitive I am. So now instead of having this figure, let me show you the numbers. So I should imagine that with, with, with your success of, 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 of competition, you also kind of measure for women maybe their being comfortable or uncomfortable interacting with males. And if they don't, are not comfortable interacting with males, they will therefore score lower in their measure of competition. But it would also be likely for them to be less likely to select into a program that has for the majority males. Would you say so? Um, I don't know per se how to measure, you know, being comfortable with boys, in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, it might, so it could be, I, I just had, I'm not sure about how the story was finished, that it affects my choice, but it doesn't affect my performance in the piece rate. So I can do piece rates where you sit in alone in the room, with boys in the room, it's not gonna have any impact, even if I look at the intensive matches. It is only when it comes towards this competition. So there's something special about competition. Even when I had to submit the piece rate, this was the answer to your question, which I didn't show you, right? So if you have the piece rate performance, and now I ask you, it's already done, it was not competitive. Now you can decide how to get picked for it, okay? Mm -hmm. Do you want it to be compared to two other guys and one other girl's performance? Or do you wanna get paid just indeed by piece rate as you had done it originally? We don't find generally different figures. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, so somehow, it is, it, so somehow the competition makes it special. Now it is true, if I compete against girls, I'm, less happy, I'm more happy to compete. Okay, so there's some interaction there, but it's, it is not just boys in the same. Yes, so we have done women only. So this was our affirmative action. And I am much more happy to compete against women than men. Uh, I, I, so there has been a nice tracing out. That's kind of what you're asking. Uh, I have just done, and I haven't seen anybody else doing anything, uh, either 50-50 or you just compete against the women. For the boys, just against the boys. The boys kind of don't care. Has the study ever been run looking at um, 
sort of drawing along that same interest, whether if you took um, girls in any of the cultures who were in single-sex education, yeah. yes. how they fared then in competition. So we have tried this in Korea, but there is actually some single-sex schools. So Korea is very interesting because uh, middle school, you actually randomly assign to middle school. You don't have a choice. And some middle schools are single-sex, and you do not have a choice. Okay. You're even randomly assigned, so your sibling can go to a different school. It is literally random. There's no way out of it unless you move to a different district. Uh, and there seems to be something there, not so much, so mm. it's hard. So I don't know. But thinking about can I change the competitiveness of people would be one right. way to go. The other way to go, I want to argue a little bit at the end, is another way might be maybe we could change the way people have to make this choice to make this variable less important. In the US, I don't have to choose once and for all. And we, I have uh, another paper where I show that this choice, once and for all, is really detrimental for women. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think there is two different ways on which we can go forward. One is to say, can I change the women? <laughs> Maybe something I want to think as well. But the other one is to say, can I change the way in which some of these choices are made or some of these environments are done? Because I don't think they had in mind to pick an environment that makes it per se harder for the women. But just they may have chosen one. Okay, the question is, can I do the same thing? Maybe they can try out math classes first, or these are the switch, or you know, let's make it less tough. So I, th I think these are definitely all avenues for future research, especially now that we found that it is so powerful. So I still want to just show you the numbers. We're going to do it quickly. Uh, again, look at this. Uh, the impact of being female on those choices. This is. What I just showed you before, when we controlled for uh, grades and so on, right? We had a 16% gap. Once I add gender, it shrinks to 13%. Suppose I add the guest rank to my belief. It, it doesn't do anything. And so if I think about adding the guest rank on itself, it does not reduce it, it actually increases it. But the impact of competition is still equally large. Well, it's basically. 15% competitive, 18%, but it's still significant. And again, this variable is still very, very large. Suppose I now just do risk. So having risk in and of itself, this is actually a significant reduction. It is marginally so. And this significance is not always there. So depending on how you run things, it's sometimes there, it's sometimes not there. So I think risk is something we still need to explore more. But even when I control for risk aversion and I add competition, you know, I get this big reduction, which is highly significant. It doesn't matter how I run the research. And when we add everything, still, you know, adding competition still gives me this big reduction. So I guess what I want to argue is that with or without controls for confidence or risk aversion, torment entries about us and of more predictive of a study profile than gender, controlling for objective and subjective academic ability, the gender gap is reduced by 18% when I add competitiveness. If I control in addition for risk and confidence, it's still reduced by 15%. So it goes down a little bit, but most of it is still there. It's down by 15%. Uh, confidence in itself, I showed it, is not going to be a, a good predictor of what I choose. And risk aversion, you know, sometimes is, sometimes is not. So I think I still things left to explore. I think it's less obvious we have good measures of risk aversion, to be honest. Uh, they are, I, th I think it's still 
think there's still room for improvement in terms of thinking of risk measures that are highly externally valid, consistent over time. You know, I think this has not been uh, that well studied yet. Now, that being said, I think we still need to do the same thing for competitiveness. You know, I guess the only defense is it's a much younger uh, a trade people have been looking at. Uh, but it is still definitely something, you know, given that it seems to be so important, something we need to understand today. So we have shown that competitiveness, this non-cognitive skill or this psychological attribute, is an important factor in educa educational choices. You know, we bridge the gap between the lab experiments and the field, and the way we did that is we have this lab measure, put it in the classroom, and then we correlated it with this external measure, you know, what track they choose. There's something that they care about per se. Okay, so I think of that as showing the external relevance or the importance of that trait for things that we actually care about. So I think this opens up new questions. One is, uh, how does competitiveness predict the performance of students in these various study profiles? Right, so think about the boys. We have shown that very competitive boys enter the math profile, even if they were not that good in math. I don't want to flounder. How about the girls? You know, if I was, uh, if I chose the math track, I'm going to be now surrounded instead of by a you know medium competitive group of students. I'm going to be surrounded by hyper competitive boys. How is that going to affect me? Okay. So hopefully we can come back and we do this, but you know I don't know yet. Would it change if they did know their ranks among each other? So I think I want to argue that in school. I mean, you kind of know how good your classmates are. Do you know perfectly? Probably not. Um, but if you had that perfect, like, rank, you, if you knew you were the class. If I tell you uh, how good you are, that you were the best, then you choose the tournament. So if I tell you what to do, you do what you should be doing to maximize your efforts. So that, that shows me that beliefs are very important. Um, you know, the question is how much of that belief formation. So it also turns out, is something I've been hiding here, is that the gender difference in beliefs are really present when it's about my relative performance in the tournament. Much less so when it's my relative performance in the peace race. So somehow, you know, there's something about tournament that is very, very special. I also don't know, so we, we have some nicer measures of beliefs in a, in a subsequent paper uh, with Marcus Möbius and, and Paul Nierhaus and Tanya Uldublad, uh, where we, we can even instrument for beliefs. So we, we find beliefs to be very important, uh, but it still, it cannot, it can just not go all the way. So there seems to be something that is left over. But beliefs are very important. Is it possible that the women, the, the girls, perceive themselves as less because they're surrounded by so many highly overconfident guys who really don't perform well, I would say that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to answer your question. And you know, it would be nice to understand more about college discompetitiveness, and maybe we should think about not just changing the girls, but also think about how we can change the environment to make some of those traits uh, less less important. Vera, thank you so much for a beautiful talk today. And do join us next week. Joni Hirsch, who's a professor of law and economics, is coming from Vanderbilt to talk about opting out and what are the causes and the consequences. So women in elite education, if you haven't read the many articles.
Thank you. Thank you.